This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Statements and views expressed are not medical advice. This podcast and its hosts and producers disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information herein. Guest opinions are their own, and this podcast does not endorse, nor does it accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. I read something today that surprised me, although I I guess I don't know why it shouldn't have. Michael Phelps, one of the most decorated Olympic athletes ever, battles depression and anxiety so badly that a few years ago, during a, a deep battle with it, he had to lock himself in his bedroom for days. During that time, he felt like he didn't want to live. He had nothing to live for. And the longer he spent in that room, he finally figured out that he needed help. He needed a way out. He checked himself into some treatment and ever since then has been battling it with exercise, diet, and and all the many things that you'll hear us discuss uh, much more in depth in this episode. But it, it was just alarming to me that a guy like Michael Phelps battles something that I battle, that so many people around us battle. And so I guess, you know, in some ways, Michael Phelps, like us, like you, like someone you know, he's a fit mess. In this episode, we'll talk with Johan Hari, author of Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and Unexpected Solutions, about why the science behind both appears to be changing. This is a fit mess with Zach and Jeremy. Yeah, it is. Quite the mess. Big stinky mess. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for being there. And thank you for all the kind uh, reviews and uh, and uh, feedback we've gotten on the first episode, which is now available at thefitmess.com. You can uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We are, we are there now, so uh, thank you for your subscriptions there. I'm Jeremy, and uh, that guy sitting over there is Zach. Hey, everyone. Hey, and, Jeremy. Uh, hello. Uh, so, as I said, on this episode, we're going to be joined by Johan Hari. He wrote the book Lost Connections. It was a really a very life-changing book for me in terms of my relationship with my depression, my anxiety. Um, we're going to have that for you in just a little bit. Uh, I do want to ask if you have not already, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts uh, or whatever service you're using to get the show because that is uh, pretty much the best way you can help uh, spread the word about it. Uh, and also, please spread the word about it and share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. We're, we're on all those sites. And you can get links to our pages, to all of that, at thefitmess.com. So, Zach, uh, you and I have known each other a long time. Uh, I've I've been pretty um, open, I think, about my battle with my depression. Uh, I know some of yours, but I feel like I don't know your story. I don't know your struggle that well. I know you deal with anxiety a lot. You're 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 always running a million miles a minute. But I don't I don't know that I know your your battle that well. Yeah, no, my battle is, I always thought, that it was depression, exactly depression. But uh, I always considered my anxiety level to be pretty normal. Uh, For me, anyway, it was normal. And when I actually went out and got tested for anxiety, you know, the the person was like, you know, a normal person is right around here, and here's the top of the scale, and then you're way up (laughs) above that. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was an interesting realization for me to, to realize that people don't play out conversations that they have to have the next day mm-hmm. in every which way that that conversation is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently that's not normal. That's but, not normal. I don't you know, do that. But, but that's what I do. Yeah. Um, so you still do that? Is that, is that still a struggle for you? It, it is to a certain extent. I really like to have a conversation played out in my head a couple of times before I actually have it. Right. Uh, just so I don't look like I, I feel like I'm going to look like an idiot if I right. don't know what I'm going to say. Right. But when I'm in the moment, it doesn't matter. That's um, funny. It's weird. But so my my depression really is kind of a, it comes from my anxiety. I think my depression is caused by my anxiety. Interesting. Um, so the more I can handle my anxiety, the lower my depression is. Is it because you feel like? you don't live up to the thing you build up in your head and so it creates a, a state of depression that's like that's like the trigger for you yeah so i hold i hold myself accountable to a bar that is way above mm-hmm. where i would hold anyone else to and when i fail to meet that well i failed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and then i feel like crap because of it it's funny i've been wanting to write something about this and and apparently this is a term that already exists for something else but in my mind i've always called it the superman complex 
Mm-hmm. Like whatever it is, I don't deal with the same level of anxiety, but I deal with the same level of high expectation of myself, especially when it comes to the way I, that I uh, am a father or I'm a husband and the amount that I give of myself to them above all else. It's, it's, it's the Superman thing. Like I have this, I'm not allowed to fail in those regards. And yeah. even the smallest failure is a massive trigger and can send me into four days of just locked in the bedroom feeling like I shouldn't be alive because I couldn't do the one thing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And it's, it's the one thing. And I, I run into that a lot too. It's for all, for the 10 successes I have during a day, mm-hmm. one failure. Way heavier. It, it, it destroys me. Yeah. I mean, it can really just ruin the rest of my day. Yeah. Um, and it can be something pretty simple too. It doesn't. Oh, it can be it, it, so inconsequential. Just some just minor thing that nobody else would ever even realize was a thing to begin with. And it just, for and you know, I, I don't know if you do the same thing, but in my head, that trigger opens a door and a pathway that takes me down all these just past failures back to just back to being like four years old. Uh huh. And it just reopens all of those wounds, and I'm just like, see, and it validates that that darkness and that yeah. that feeling of I'm not worthy of love, attention, kindness of others, whatever. Yeah, and it's so easy to go that route. Like, oh yeah, the the it's the path of least resistance. Like if you've had problems with anxiety and depression your entire life, mm-hmm. you have these neural pathways that go that direction, and you just need one little trigger. Boom! And there it goes. The, my therapist always says it's uh, it's like playing the piano. If you if you know that song, that's the song you're going to play. Yeah. Trying to learn a new song, like not you know holding yourself to that high expectation, yeah. takes a lot of work and a lot of practice and that's something that we're learning. And speaking of validation, that is something that uh our our interview or our our guest on this show really helped me with this year. This year has been a big year of transformation for me, a big year of change. Uh our guest Johan Hari wrote the book Lost Connections and uh I had, uh, toward the end of last year, had stopped taking uh, um, medication for my depression. I had stopped using other substances for my depression. And when I came across his book that talks about a lot of the causes and a lot of the uh, the current beliefs about what causes depression and how to treat it, so much of the of the fears that I had, because I, I didn't take medication for years. I, I sort of just felt like I needed to just fight this on my own for years, or I didn't really fully understand, I guess, to the degree uh, that I suffered from it. Uh, but I eventually tried the medication. It didn't work for me over and over and over again. And all the years of not taking it and then experiencing the negative uh, consequences of taking it, uh, I felt really validated in what I read from this book because he doesn't he, – he'll be the first one to tell you that he's not telling you not to take medication. But yeah. he's telling you there are other things that can be done to help uh, much more substantially and much more significantly than medication. But he'll also tell you there's no quick fix, and this is a, a social change that has to happen. This is a grand rethinking of sort of the way – we live our lives, especially, I think, in the West. But I yeah. might be putting words in his mouth on that part. Uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. We asked him for 10 minutes, and he gave us an hour and a half. This is not that hour and a half. This is a large majority of it. But I hope you will find this conversation as fascinating as I did. Uh, I I literally could still be talking to him uh, many days after we started that conversation. Yeah. Ne- neither one of us were too intent on hanging the phone up. No, no. Uh, I I hope he enjoyed it as well because we, we took a lot of his time and he was very generous. But we did begin uh, just by talking with him about sort of what drove him to do this research and to write this book. Yeah, well, this was kind of personal for me. When I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I remember saying that I had this feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me. And I couldn't control it or regulate it. I didn't really understand why it was happening. And I, I felt quite ashamed of it. And then when my doctor told me a, a story that was kind of being, this was the late 90s, this was being told all over the world, this story. And I now realize it was really, really oversimplified. But my doctor said, well, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. They have a kind of chemical imbalance in their brains. All we need to do is give you these drugs. You're going to be fine. So I started taking an antidepressant that's marketed in the US. It's called Paxil. And I did feel a lot better for a few months. And then this feeling of pain started to bleed back through. So I went back to the doctor. He said, clearly, I didn't give you a high enough dose and gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, feeling of pain started coming back. I was really in this cycle until 
for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose, at the end of which I still felt like shit. And so I remember at the end of that, when I, I started working on this book, Lost Connections, I remember just thinking, I'd, at some level, I'd always had some doubts about this story I'd been told. Not least because, look, I'm nearly 40, and almost every year I'd been alive, depression and anxiety have increased uh, across the Western world. And I remember thinking, well, if it was just a chemical imbalance in people's brains, why would it be rising so much, right? Why would that be happening to all of us or so many of us? But, you know, I, I felt very committed to that story. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I ended up traveling over 40,000 miles um, to really meet the leading scientific experts in the world about what, what actually causes depression and anxiety and, and people with very different perspectives, you know, from an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have very low levels of depression too. A city in Brazil where they, were, they banned advertising to see if that made people feel better, to a, a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people magic mushrooms to see if that would help. And I learned lots of things, but the, the core of what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety, some of which are biological, but most of which are factors in the way we live. And once you understand these nine different causes, you can begin to see a whole set of different solutions that begin to open up that should be offered alongside, not instead of, chemical antidepressants. I open up a whole different way of thinking about this that's really helped me, and, and I think it's helped lots of other people. I know it did for me. I uh, I resisted medication for, for many, many years, and it wasn't until uh, I became a father uh, seven years ago that I really decided, you know, I need to take this on and, and you know, be more present for my kids and, and not let this hold me back from being the best parent I can be. And that's when I started exploring medication, and I tried three different kinds. I did Celexa, Wellbutrin, Lexapro, and all of them had negative side effects. And all of them, I could almost visualize the limitations that it put on my emotions. And that led me to uh, to drinking more, to using more marijuana, because I was, I found that, that the more numb I got, that it made everything a little more manageable. But any, anything that would knock me out of that numbness would just enrage me. And finally, I just, I just thought, you know, this can't be right. This goes against everything I've always believed that, that I just, I need to find better ways to cope and not so much lean on medication. And when I read in your book, how little uh, medication seems to benefit most people, it was just such an eye opener. Yeah. I find what you just said really moving. And I think we need to have a more complex, nuanced and honest conversation about chemical antidepressants that acknowledges their real benefits for some people. For me, the most two most startling facts, there's many, you, you alluded to the fact that, you know, they have terrible side effects for some people. 70% of men, it affects their sexual functioning, for example. Um, many people experience, I experienced a huge weight gain. At the same time, there were real benefits for me initially. And I was interested to look at this and, um, there's two facts that are really worth thinking about. Well, there are many facts worth thinking about. Let's look at two. So one is depression is generally often measured by something called the Hamilton scale. I've always felt really sorry for whoever Hamilton was, that we had to remember him by how miserable we all are. Anyway. <laughs> the Hamilton scale goes from zero, where you would be dancing around in ecstasy, maybe on ecstasy, to 51, where you would be acutely suicidal. And to give the listeners a sense of what movement on the Hamilton scale looks like, if you improve your sleep patterns, you'll generally gain about six points on the Hamilton scale. And if your sleep patterns deteriorate, like when you have a baby, you generally move six points the other way. On average, over time, according to the best research by the leading expert at Harvard Medical School, chemical antidepressants will move you 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale, which is a little bit less than a third of improving your sleep patterns. It's important to say a few things. That's an average. So some people will get more. I initially got much more than that. And of course, over time, got less. Also worth saying, 1.8 points ain't nothing, right? 1.8 points is something. You can see how, for an acutely suicidal person, that might be the thing that gets them off the bridge. That's a, it's a great thing. But you can also see, for most people, that's not going to solve their problem, right? It may give them some relief. Some people, in fact, do get some relief. Some people get the, have the experience you had that you described very movingly, where if, far from relief, it's actually a worse sensation. The other piece of research I think is really worth looking at is something called the STAR-D trial, which is the best long-term research we have into chemical antidepressants. And it's worth stressing, most of the time when you see headlines, new proof that chemical antidepressants work, there was a big British medical study earlier this year that, that was reported that way, which was a good study. 
what they're looking at is the first eight weeks, right? Almost all the research you look at looks at four weeks, or that, you, that is reported looks at four weeks or eight weeks. But the vast majority of people around you who are taking chemical antidepressants have been taking them far longer than four to eight weeks. So what's the research about that? And the best research, there's shockingly little research done into that, but the best research we have is something called the STAR-D trial, which I recommend people look up. And what it finds is the vast majority of people taking chemical antidepressants become depressed again. Now, that isn't to say they're not getting some benefit from them, but it's not solving their problem. And I think this is just a kind of, it feels to me almost banal. It's surprising to me that this is so controversial. You know, chemical antidepressants help some people, other people they have a bad effect on, but they're not solving the problem. And that's partly because they're based on the wrong theory of depression, right? Actually, this overwhelming evidence depression is not caused by a spontaneous chemical imbalance in your brain. Certainly for the vast majority of people experiencing depression and anxiety. It's quite shocking to me to, you know, for example, the, the leading expert at Princeton, Professor Andrew Skull, says, these were his words, it's deeply misleading and unscientific to say depression is just caused by low serotonin. One of the leading experts in Europe, who's a more controversial figure than Professor Skull, but I think has some good points to make, uh, a guy called Professor David Healy here in Britain said to me, you can't even say the claim that depression is caused by low serotonin has been discredited because it was never credited. There was never a time when a majority of people in the field would have told you that depression was caused by low serotonin. How did we get here then? If that was never proven, how did that become the prevailing theory about how people got depressed? Well, that was the story that the pharmaceutical companies figured out would best market these new drugs. I mean, it really was as kind of bald as that, because as, 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 as Dr. Healy and others have shown, it was never, that was never the view of most science. There were some scientists who believed that, um, but they were never a majority of scientists in the field. And there was effectively a decision to choose a kind of, you know, marketing strategy. And it's interesting because there was, which is not to say that there are not real biological factors that contribute to depression, because there are. For example, your genes make you somewhat more vulnerable to this problem. Um, there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that can make it um, somewhat harder to get out. But uh, it's just there's someone I spoke to who really helped me to think a bit differently about this. It was a kind of bridging moment um, in, what I, in what I learned on this long journey I went on for Lost Connections, which is when she interviewed this South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield. Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants in that country for the people there. And the local doctors, the Cambodian doctors, had never heard of these drugs. Uh, so they said to him, what are they? And he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need those drugs. Uh, we've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy like St. John's wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over by the American invasion of Southeast Asia and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the fields. But apparently it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic for obvious reasons. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. It was classic depression. The doctor said to Derek, well, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, that it was a response to things that had happened to him. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was upsetting him so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke, right? I, you know, I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. <laughs> but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively was what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and support. And so one of the things I'm trying to, re I started asking, you know, and I obviously was a large part of the journey for my book, Lost Connections, was, well, what's the cow for the things that are making us feel so bad? How do we solve that? And, th and that's, I guess that's the thing. And that's something that Zach and I talk a lot about on this show is really the struggle. The reason I think that medication is so 
dominant as as a treatment is that it's easy. You take a pill, and that's supposed to make your problems go away. And and maybe at worst, uh, being told that this is out of your control and that your brain is broken sort of lets you off the hook from trying. Like, oh, I, I'm just broken. This is just how I am. There's nothing I can do about it. But one of the big takeaways for me for, for, for your book was that it is within my control. Yes, the depression that I've battled my entire life may have altered my brain in some ways, and and that might make the the challenge um, that much more challenging. But it is a struggle. It's something you have to fight through. You have to find that love and support. You have to find that fulfillment in life. And that is that's not something the doctor can just write a prescription for and send you out the door and say, there you go. Yeah, I would say a few things about that. One is people aren't wrong to want urgent relief, right? As, as we, the three of us know, depression is a horrific sensation. And people naturally and rightly want urgent relief. My issue isn't with so much the drug, although there's, of course, some people have terrible side effects and there's, you know, with all the caveats that we've talked about. My issue is with the story that is often told alongside the drugs. If you give people an inaccurate map of the territory, they can't find their way through it. And my worry is, if you tell people that this is just a biological problem, when there's overwhelming scientific evidence that's not the case, of course there is a biological component, there's overwhelming evidence there are psychological and social components that are extremely significant in depression and anxiety. If you, if you tell people this inaccurate story, what it, do, what it did to me is it cuts you off from finding the solutions in your life. And the way I would, the only thing I would say, I wouldn't say disagree with him what you said, but I would, I would, uh, I think I would put it slightly differently is, I don't think this is how you're putting it or meaning it, but I think too often in American culture, there's a polarity where something is either a biological problem or it's the job of the individual to solve it. And I think, Neither of those ways of thinking is, they both have some truth in them, but they're both, both, they're both one aspect of the picture. To me, the much more important way is to think about how we can solve it, not how you can solve it. So think about that farmer the, with, the, with the cow, right? Now, his problem was not a biological problem, nor could he as an isolated individual solve his problem. What he needed was communal support and help and actually a very practical intervention, which was a group of people buying him a cow. So it wasn't like he alone couldn't solve it, right? So I don't think saying to him, your job now is to solve this problem would have been helpful to him. What he needed was a collective shared intervention, which is quite different from either the biological way or the individual way of talking about this. Most of the things that are driving up the epidemic of depression and anxiety that we're solving about, there are things that individuals can do. And of course, the last third of the book is about what we can do. But most of those things can't be solved by isolated individuals. What they can be solved by is active citizens. So you as an isolated individual can't solve this problem. You as part of a citizenry that understands how we've all been made to feel so shit and that comes together to solve those problems. Let's think about an analogy, right? If we went back to the 1930s and we said we're talking to an isolated, closeted gay man who felt like shit, right, as of course gay men did then, we would rightly now, if we could go back in time, we would we would um, set aside the biological argument. We'd say, well, it's not that you're biologically diseased, right? Which, of course, is the main thing they were told. We said, what can you as an isolated individual in the closet do? To be honest, not much, right? You're going to feel like shit. But what you can do is become part of a movement that deals with the reason why you're being treated so badly, right? And in fact, that's what happened. And now gay people, while well, they still face many challenges, are much less depressed than they were in the 1930s. Right. So, so I, I, I would just stress the collective aspects of change. And that can sound a bit abstract. So I'm sure we'll talk about some very specific examples of places that have done this that I've been to for the book. Um, do, do you see what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I think we agree. And I think that I clumsily was trying to trying to articulate that, that it's not as simple as just a pill, but maybe the maybe the pill gets you enough energy to join a support group or to go to therapy or to inject yourself into things that can help to sort of start to bring you out. Because I do think it does have to start somewhere with, with that person, um, even, even just acknowledging that they have a problem or, or asking for help. Um, yeah, am, I, am I close? Yeah. I mean, I, I gave you a good example of, um, 
one of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about and, and one of the solutions which I think really gets at what you're what you're talking about. So we are the loneliest culture there's ever been. There's a study um, that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, uh, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. It's not the average, but it's the most common answer. You know, we are deeply social species. I'm a, one of the great experts on, on loneliness in the world, a wonderful man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago taught me a lot about this. Um, why do we exist? Why are we alive? One of the key reasons why everyone listening to your podcast is alive is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And if you were separated from the tribe in those circumstances, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to fucking die, right? You were, you were in right. terrible danger. So every instinct we have as human beings is to be profoundly upset and anxious if we're separated from our tribes. And we are the first human society ever to disband our tribes. And as a result, this is one of the key factors why we feel terrible. So I was trying to think about, well, what's, what's the answer to that? Right? What's, the, what's the, the cow for that, right? And, and, and I spent a lot of time with an extraordinary, one of the heroes really of Lost Connections. There's a doctor in East London, a poor part of East London where I actually lived for a long time, called Sam Everington. And Sam was really uncomfortable. He's a general practitioner. He had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. Like me, he thinks there's some role for the drugs, but he could also see they just weren't solving the problem for most people. One day he had, he decided to pioneer this different approach. A woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know quite well. She'd been shut away in her home for seven years with just crippling depression and anxiety. And one day Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as dog shit alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was just kind of scrubland. And Sam said to Lisa, what I want you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week. I'm going to turn out and support you. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And we're going to turn dog shit alley into something nice, right? First time the group met, they were literally physically sick with anxiety. Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But they started to talk. They decided they were going to learn gardening. These were inner city East London people who didn't know anything about gardening. They started to get their fingers in the soil. As the weeks passed, they started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really, really powerful antidepressant. But they also started to do something else. They started to form a group. They started to form a tribe. They started to notice when the other people weren't there. They started to solve each other's problems. The way Elisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. And there's a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for a kind of obvious reason, right? It was dealing with some of the reasons why they felt so terrible in the first place. And, and this is something I saw all over the world. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel so terrible in the first place. I'd, I'd like to switch gears from what's causing it to what we can do about it. I went to my doctor I probably eight years ago and said, you know, I'm just tired all the time. I just, I want you to check me out and see if there's anything wrong with me as to why I'm so tired all the time. And she prescribed antidepressants. So they've been being handed out like candy, in my opinion, um, without actually going down and looking at the root of the problem. Um, you know, I found out years later that, you know, I just had really high anxiety and uh, a bunch of other things that I really needed to just deal with. And it made my life better. The antidepressants didn't do it. You know, if somebody is suffering, if somebody is on, on, on antidepressants, um, they're, they're cut off from society in, in a, a meaningful way. How can we start to address that at a, at a large scale? You know, what, what can a person do? What small changes can they start to make to turn that around and you know, I, I always wanted a, you know, a, an overnight fix for my depression. You know, I wanted a, a quick hack that I could employ and not change my life at all. But, you know, the whole point of this show is to let people know that you can get better. It's going to require work and some struggle. 
but what can people do to to turn that around and 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 start to feel better yeah so the you've gone to exactly the most important question and the last third of, of my book lost connections is really an attempt to to answer that and you know there's lots of things i go through there but the thing i most think about when you ask that question is you know obviously i spoke to lots of scientists and i learned lots of evidence about this that i go through but actually i think the people who taught me most for lost connections with a different group of people entirely and if you, it's okay with you i'll just tell their story for a minute because I, I think it's the core of the answer to your question although there's many other things that we need to think about yeah in the summer of 2011 on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a Turkish-German woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and stuck a sign in her window. So Nuria lived on the ground floor. And the sign said something like, I got a notice today saying that I'm going to be evicted from my apartment. And I've lived here, you know, for decades. Uh, so next Thursday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this is a big anonymous housing project in one of the poorest parts of Berlin. It's a place called Kotti. And, and it was an area where no one really wanted to live. So the, basically three groups had ended up living there. It was a uh, recent Muslim immigrants like Nuria, punk squatters and gay men. As you can imagine, these groups would look at each other with a lot of incomprehension and no one knew each other. No one knew Nuria. But they saw this sign in her window and people started to knock on her door and they said, are you okay? Do you need some help? And she said, fuck off. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. And, and people started outside her apartment, just people started just standing there saying, well, what can we do to help this woman? And one day, one of the people who, worked, who lived in Kotti had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes into the center of Berlin that runs just past Kotti. And they had this idea, which was, if we just blocked the road for a day and we wheeled Nuria out, maybe the media will come and they'll cover it. There might be a bit of a fuss because everyone was pissed off that their rents were going up. Lots of people were being evicted. And maybe there'll be a fuss. They'll probably let her stay. So they decided to do it. So it came to Saturday. They went and blocked the road. People stood there. They wheeled Nuria out. She was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let them. And they sat there in the middle of the road and they blocked the traffic. And the media did come. And it was a little news story in Berlin that day. Uh, and Nuria was kind of bemused, but she got interviewed for the television. And, and then it got to the end of the day. And the police said, OK, you've had your fun. Take it down. But the people who lived in Kotti said, well, hang on, you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually, we want a rent freeze for our entire block, our whole housing project. So when you give us those guarantees, then then we'll take this down. But of course, they knew the minute they left this, they, they walked out of the road, they, they put a little barricade up, but they knew the minute they left, the police would just tear it down and that would be it. So what happened is uh, one of the people who lived there, one of my favorite people there, a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's one of the, the punk squatters, uh, Tanya wears like tiny little miniskirts, even in Berlin winter. She's pretty hardcore. Tanya explained that in her apartment, she had a klaxon, you know, those things from soccer matches that make a loud noise. She said, I'm going to go get my klaxon. What we're going to do is you're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day until we get these guarantees. And if the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon and we'll all come down from our apartments and we'll stop them. So people who would, didn't know each other would never have met start signing up, right, to man the barricade. And these were people who, you know, were from very, very different backgrounds. So Nuria, the woman who put the sign in her, in her window, in her full headscarf, Islamic headscarf, was paired with Tanya, who's in a, you know, tiny miniskirt. They got, if I remember right, they got the Thursday night shifts. And they're sitting there, these Thursday nights in Cotty, through the night, and they're like, we've got nothing to talk about. We've got nothing in common, right? It's super awkward. Tanya just taps away on her laptop. But as the nights go by, they started to talk. They realized they had something incredibly powerful in common. Nuria had, had come to live in Berlin when she was 17 years old from a little village in Turkey. And she came with her two young children. And her job was to raise enough money, working three jobs to, to send back for her husband in Turkey. After she'd been in Berlin for a year, she got word from home that her husband had died. Sitting there in the three o'clock in the morning in Kotti, she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. She'd always told people that her husband had died of a heart attack. In fact, her husband had died of tuberculosis, which was regarded as a real disease of poverty. It was regarded as shameful. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she'd never told anyone. Tanya had grown up in a middle-class family in Berlin and 
when she was 15, she got thrown out by her family. She'd come to live in Cotty in one of the punk squats there. And not long after she got pregnant, they realized they'd both been these young mothers, very young mothers, children themselves with children, that they'd actually been very similar. These kind of pairings were happening all over Cotty, these very unlikely pairings. There was a young lad called uh, Mehmet who kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had um, ADHD. He got paired with this grumpy old white German guy who said that he didn't believe in direct action and loved Stalin, but in this rare case, he'd make an exception. And, and they would sit there doing the shifts and this grumpy old white guy actually started helping Mehmet with his homework. Directly opposite Cotty, this housing project, there was um, there's a, a gay club called Zudblock that had opened about four years before. And when this club had been opened, as you can imagine, there's a lot of recent Muslim immigrants. They'd been kind of outraged. Some had actually smashed their windows. This gay club started to give their furniture to the barricade and they started to say, you know, uh, you guys could come and have all your meetings in our, in our club. You know, we can, we'll give you free drinks. And at first, even the kind of left-wing people at Cotty were like, look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings in a gay club underneath, you know, these very explicit gay posters. But actually, that they did start having their meetings there. And uh, the local Muslims did start coming. As one of the Muslim women there said to me, we all realized we had to take these, these steps to understand each other. And about after this protest had been going on for about a year, uh, one day a guy turned up called Tunkai, who was in his early 50s. And Tunkai is... Um, when you meet him, it's clear that he'd have some kind of he has some kind of cognitive difficulties. Um, he'd been living homeless, and he started um, asking if he could help out. And and he, everyone immediately liked him. He's got an amazing, wonderful energy about him. He really united everyone at Cotty. And after a little while, they they'd actually built a kind of permanent structure in the middle of the street. And they started saying to they said to Tunkai, well, you, you know, you should. We don't want you to be sleeping on the streets. You should you should come and live in this structure we've built. So he started living there. And after he'd been at Cotty for about nine months, uh, one day the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue, so he went to try to hug one of the police officers, but they thought he was attacking them, so they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years, often in a padded cell. He'd escaped one day. He'd lived on the streets for a few months and he'd made his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to this psychiatric hospital right at the other side of Berlin. At which point, the entire Cotty movement turned into a kind of free Tunkai movement. They descended on this psychiatric hospital. And I remember the, uh, how shocked these psychiatrists were, right? They suddenly got these, like, very camp gay men, these Muslims in headscarves, and these punks demanding the release of this person they'd had locked away for 20 years. They were completely baffled. But... I remember Uli, one of the protesters, saying to them, but he doesn't belong with you. You don't love him. We love him. He belongs with us. It took a while, but they got Tunkai back. And many things happened at Cotty. Um, I guess the obvious headline is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the city, a ballot initiative. They got the largest number of signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. I remember the last time I saw Nuria, she said to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by all these amazing people all along and, and I never knew. I remember another one of the Turkish German women who took part in the protest there, a woman called Neriman Manker said to me, you know, when she'd grown up in Turkey, um, she grew up in a village and she called her whole village home. And then she came to live in the Western world and she learned that what we're meant to call home is just our four walls. And then she said that this whole protest began and she started to call this whole place her home and all these people her home. And she realized all this time she'd been living in the Western world, she'd in some sense been homeless because our sense of home is not big enough to meet our need for belonging. The reason I think about Conti in response to your, your question is one of the things that was so clear to me I mean, think about these people, right? Nuria was suicidal. Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell. Mehmet kept being told that he had ADHD, right? It would throw him out of school. These people, they didn't need to be drugged. They needed to be together. And it didn't take much. One of the things that's amazing to me about Cotty, much as I love those people, is in some ways they're not exceptional, right? That this was, this was just beneath the surface, this 
hunger for reconnection, this hunger for meaning and purpose was so close to the surface for so long. And it didn't take much for them to tap that, right? And for them to be so happy when they found it and for them to, to this is, if, so, if people are listening to this and they're depressed and anxious, you are surrounded by people who have the same longings for reconnection that you are. And it doesn't take much for someone to be the first person to say, we can reconnect with a sense of purpose and meaning. We can do things together. If all those people are carried away, just being shut away in that. I remember Tanya, uh, one of the protesters saying to me, you know, when you're in your home and you're all alone and you feel like shit, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did here is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight and we realized how strong we were. And to me, that's the, now clearly that will have many different applications in many different places and the exact model in Cotty is not right for everyone. But to me, that is the heart of solving this problem is to come out of your corner crying and start to fight. And to some degree, the struggle is the solution, right? The act of coming together and saying it's not some fuck up in you, it's not a problem in your brain tissue, that actually it, it, it's a problem afflicting so many of us. One in four middle-aged women in the United States is taking chemical antidepressants at any given time. One in four, right? This is a really deep, and, and there's a lot more people who feel terrible who are not drugging themselves. This is a really deep crisis. And there's a real hunger for this reconnection. So obviously I go through lots of more detailed things that we can do in lost connections. But to me, the heart of it is for many people and there's other causes of depression and anxiety like childhood trauma for which there are different solutions. But do, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I think that's the point I was trying to clumsily make earlier is that you do, you just have to start somewhere, but it, it just takes starting, it, whether it's knocking on your neighbor's door or finding a therapist or something. But I mean, is that kind of, uh, I guess the advice is just start small, start somewhere, just trying to find a way to reconnect and, and from there sort of get involved in a bigger movement of something that, that drives you, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a big part. Of it. I mean, there are other things going on and there's, I also think we shouldn't put the onus for solving depression on already depressed and anxious people, right? We don't say the problem of solving car accidents has to be solved by people who've just been mangled in a car wreck, right? <laughs> right. We don't, we don't say, you know, precisely because we know that car accidents are a pro potential problem for everyone, we have a whole social infrastructure to deal with it, right? So we have uh, driving tests and seatbelts and airbags. We arrest drunk drivers. We have, our, we have speed limits. We have a huge range of responses. And we have, if people do get mangled in a car crash, we have emergency rooms and we have physios and rehab and all of these things, right? But we don't say the job of enforcing that lies with someone who's just been in a car crash. In fact, we would regard that as really weird. Right. You know, we, we, we wouldn't say, you know, yeah. To go back to the analogy of, uh, of the, the guy that got the cow and, and this group of people that sort of came together, in those stories, someone goes to the afflicted person and, and offers them help. But I think a lot of times depression uh, is hidden behind a mask or is hidden behind someone, um, you know, sort of staying in, not going out, not putting themselves out there. So I think there are many cases where people are not aware that someone needs that help. They need the cow um, so, so I guess for that person who's sitting there going, who's going to bring me a cow? If nobody knows you need the cow, how, how does that person take a step toward letting their, their neighbors, whoever, how do they get themselves in a place to get the help they need? I think that's a good point. I think part of it comes right back to where we started. If what we're doing is we're telling a story about depression and anxiety, that they're just biological problems, right? That they're just problems inside people's brains. I think that's actually quite disabling. It can give people some initial relief, but I think it's ultimately quite disabling. If you think about the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, right? Every person who's being made depressed and anxious by these things, there's even more people who are being made unhappy, whose lives are being diminished by these things. So for example, one of the causes of depression and anxiety that I present the scientific evidence for is if you go to work tomorrow and you are controlled, so you have low or no choices about your work, you're much more likely to become depressed and anxious, right? 
and actually giving people back control over their work in ways that I talk about massively reduces depression and anxiety. Now, some people are being made depressed and anxious by the lack of control at work. Most people are being made less happy than they could be by it, right? And there's something about actually, if we look at these co- the real causes of depression and anxiety, that actually unites all of us, right? Or almost all of us. It actually shows that far from saying, well, throw a bit of charity to this biologically broken person, what we're saying is we're all part of a system that's making us feel less good than we could. And actually, let's fight together for the things that if, if we win the things that will reduce depression and anxiety, everyone's life, including the lives of people who are not depressed and anxious, will be improved. I guess the, the core of a lot of what I'm talking about is everyone knows that they've got natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be screwed real fast, right? right. But there's equally strong evidence that we have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And our culture is good at lots of things, but we're getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological problems. And that's where we have to to go to the heart of the crisis and and, and do the very practical things that I talk about in the book that, 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 that at the beginning of dealing with that. I don't claim to have all the answers to this. Obviously, it's a huge problem, but but I do think there's lots of very practical things that I, that I reported on for the book that I've seen tried in other countries that are giving people a lot of um, relief and reducing these problems. I've spent, a, I've spent a lot of years, you know, going through that struggle myself and figuring out, you know, what's wrong with me. And I, I've put it together in, a few, in the last few years that there's nothing wrong with me. It's, it's just changes I needed to make in my life. First, to, to kind of go back to what Jeremy said at the very beginning, thank you so much for writing this book. I mean, as I was reading it, it's validated so much of what I've been feeling around you know, it, it, it's not me that's broken. It's, you know, drug companies that are getting drugs through the FDA that's broken. And one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is so that, you know, we've, we've done a fair amount of healing ourselves and we want to pass that on to other people. And your book is, it's that information, right? It's, that's the thing that people need to realize is that they're not necessarily broken. Um, and there is a way to heal that doesn't involve, you know, what society is trying to sell us, you know? that because I think the real heart of what I learned and what I want to pass on to people is to say your pain makes sense, right? This is the most important insight. People feel these ways for a reason and those reasons are not hard to understand. Um, They may seem mysterious when you're in the throes of depression because it does feel like a kind of fog, but they're not hard to understand. I feel in a way a big part of my job is just to give people permission to know the things that in their heart they already know. And it's been a really weird experience for me because before my book came out, I remember sitting the, literally the night before it came out with one of my closest friends and saying, you know, to be honest, I think the reaction to my book is going to be, well, no shit, Sherlock. Did we need you to tell us that, right? Like the, <laughs> you know, and what amazed me was the book came out and I kept being introduced in interviews where he would say, and now we're going to talk to Johan Hari, who's written an incredibly controversial new book. We're far from people receiving these things as banal and obvious. I kept being presented like I was some kind of crazy heretic who was, you know, and, you know, of course, I'm, the things I'm saying are the views of the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, some of the leading scientists in the world. But it was, I mean, I'm a one interviewer telling me it was controversial to say loneliness caused depression. I thought, how did it come so disconnected from really obvious things you know how did we get to a point where telling people that if you're controlled at work you know if you've had a terribly traumatic childhood if you're acutely lonely if you're soaking up humiliation all day that's going to make you feel terrible that these are causes of depression it's a bizarre you know and i remember being in a, a tv debate for example with a perfectly admirable doctor and talking about the social causes of depression and anxiety and her she kept saying to me but we know that life events can cause depression right i'm saying no i'm not talking about life events like your dog being run over 
I'm talking about deep social causes. And she literally just couldn't understand what I was saying, right? She, she, it's not that she's an unintelligent person. It's just that this is a, such a, an ideological dogma, right? That, that we, we've been so blinded to these deeper causes, partly by the pharmaceutical companies, but partly by these deeper forces. When I was a child, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families, right? And as you can probably guess, I was never a fan of Margaret Thatcher, but that we really internalize that, right? Mm -hmm. To the point where if someone comes along and says, actually, there are these deep social causes of depression and anxiety, and we have to solve them together. Some people think what I'm saying is you all need to go and live in the woods and do yoga or something as isolated individuals. It's really fascinating when people can't hear what you're saying, because there's a really deep ideological dogma. So I've had this a lot with, you know, some say, but we can't socially solve anything, right? And it's, in, it's incredible to instill that idea in people's minds. I remember sitting with a group of very admirable people who told me, we're not going to have any social change. And by coincidence, one of them was a woman, a white woman, one of them was an African-American man, and one of them was disabled. But I was saying, right, let's think about the four groups that we belong to, and let's think about the changes that we are, I mean, my grandmothers were not allowed to have bank accounts once they got married, right? Obviously, uh, a woman doesn't need me to mansplain that to them. An African-American doesn't need me to tell them about the transformations in their group. As a gay person, changes are very obvious. And for a disabled person, changes are very obvious. We are all the beneficiaries of deep changes that seemed impossible when they were first proposed, right? The weekend was a super radical idea when labor unions first started fighting for it, right? But there's a tendency to write that out of history and act like social change isn't possible. Social change is the norm, right? The, the, now, obviously, we're in a moment of deep political pessimism for all sorts of reasons. But it, it's very interesting to me when, you know, I wouldn't make great claims for myself, but I think I am a good, clear communicator. And it's really interesting when you're saying something quite clearly and people can't hear you. And I'm fascinated by that. And I try to approach that in a spirit of curiosity. Why can't this person hear what I'm saying? So it's been a really interesting process of, you know, look, the message has resonated really widely. And, the, you know, lots of people have heard the message and responded to it in the way you guys did. It's also really fascinating when people hear something you're not saying, whether it's some people hearing me as saying, burn your chemical antidepressants. They have no role to play, which I very explicitly don't say in the book. In fact, I say... You know, they do have a role for some people, but it, we've got to just be honest about the limitations. Or when people hear you saying, you know, so you're saying it's my fault, uh, because if some people think that we really are trapped in this dichotomy between either your biology or you as an isolated individual have to solve it, or people think you're saying, and it's all sorts of things. It's it's just really interesting to to hear the kind of ideological barriers that have been erected in people's minds to actually understanding why we feel this way and which, and, and if we block the understanding, then we can't get to the solutions. Right. So to me, that's been a really fascinating and complicated process. And I've been very moved by how widely the message has resonated and really interested by the barriers to the message resonating. I think both those aspects of it are really interesting because I don't think this isn't like explaining quantum physics to people, right? This cuts with our intuition, not against our intuitions. These are not radical ideas. As I say, the World Health Organization are the people who are saying we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances. You know, they've been very explicit about this, that what's called the biomedical model, the idea that it's just a problem in your brain that just has to be solved with drugs. They've said that that is really letting people down. They've, they've said we need to abandon that model, which of course doesn't mean abandoning all the drugs, for a much more complicated and nuanced way of talking about these problems it's fascinating that you can have that as the position of the main medical body in the world. And yet explaining that is, is that is not the, the, the view that is told to ordinary people when they go to their doctor. Right. right. Um, and I, my, one of my nephews, who's a teenager, one of his best friends went to the doctor with depression just after the book came out and was told by the doctor, he had a dopamine imbalance in his brain. And I thought, Jesus, in the 20 years from me going to the doctor to him going to the doctor, the only shift is, is he's not told it's serotonin. Now he's told it's dopamine imbalance. This is a really, we can do a lot better than this. I was telling somebody the other day that two points there, you know, it's unfortunate that I say this line 
as often as I do, but you know, common sense isn't quite as common as we all want to believe it is. And someone's belief structure, right? I mean, if you're told something from childhood and you have a belief that, you know, people hold their beliefs like they're babies, right? It's very personal to them. And I spend a lot of my time going against those beliefs with other people. And a lot of people think I'm calling their baby ugly, um, which they react um, violently to. Um, and there's a lot of arguments that happen. But I think you've got a really interesting point there because, and I understand the resistance to these ideas because I felt very resistant to them as I talked about in the book, right? There's this British psychologist who said that one of the most powerful things you can ever do is give people a story about their distress. And if I think about the chemical imbalance story that I was told, right? Why did I cling to that for 13 years? I'm not a stupid person, right? At some level, I knew that couldn't be enough to explain this. You know, I had studied the social sciences, right? How could it be that I didn't apply this to myself? And I do think there's, if you're given a story about your pain, even if that story doesn't work very well, at least you feel like you know where you are, right? It's like, if you think about your pain as a, a wild animal that can savage you, what a story does even a bad story is it puts it on a leash. At least you feel you understand it, right? And there's a period of transition when you're leaving a bad story and going into what I think of as a better, more complex, more true story, which is profoundly destabilizing. Because there's a moment in which you think, well, if that's not right, then I don't understand my pain. And that's a moment of profound vulnerability because then you feel like, oh, shit, someone's taken the leash off, right? Am I going to be savaged here? So I understand why there's a lot of resistance and I understand why, why it can seem really painful and hard to make that adjustment. And also, the truth is, there's disempowering things about the chemical imbalance story. I think that the story we're talking about is much more empowering. But I can understand why that's destabilizing because there are people who are stuck. It's a lot of people who are stuck. What do you tell that person that's stuck, that's too exhausted to watch TV, that can't join a gardening club, that can't join a social movement? What is the message to that person from your book that how, how do you guide them out based on what you've learned? I would try to use the cow principle. I'd say the rest of us are going to unite and fight for you so that we can change your circumstances with you, Right. Uh, so what I would try to do is, well, first of all, I give them a lot of love and support. I'd say your pain makes sense. It's not your fault you feel this way. It's not because you're biologically broken, although there are some biological factors that may be at play. Um, you need a lot of love and practical support. I would try to sit with them and listen to them. I would try to figure out what help they needed in their life. And I would try to give them that help. And I would try to fight with many other people deep for for deeper social changes that would actually help them change their lives. What would I say to that person? The truth is, I'd just try to give them love and compassion. And I would try to deal with the circumstances that meant that they were in such a terrible situation. So they didn't need me to sit there holding their hand. But while they did, I would try to do that. And I would try to give love and compassion. We've got to be honest, right? Telling someone who, who, who's been treated really badly by our culture and deprived of their psychological needs being met, telling them, you know, you alone as an isolated individual can fix this is cruel. Now, as part of a social movement, as part of a, a wave of people, you can make extraordinary changes. Some of those people at Cotty were really disempowered and trapped, and they did make an amazing change. But I think the kind of individualized personal advice, I think is that is directing you to personal changes you as an isolated individual should make, that's part of the problem, right? That, right. That, that's always told to think in that way. You're an isolated individual. The problem is with you. You've got to fix yourself. That just makes people feel even worse. And it's not true. The problem isn't in you. Right. you know, Krishnamurti, the Indian philosopher, said, There's, it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society, right? The problem isn't with you, right? The problem is with us, with, with the way we, the, the culture that's been built, and we can fix that together. We can't fix it if we're broken up into isolated individuals who are constantly told that there's something wrong, either with us as moral individuals or in our brains. That's not going to solve the problem, right? That's what got us here. No, absolutely. Johan, I asked you for 10 minutes, 
And you gave you, you gave us so so much more. And uh, I really I I could talk to you all day. This stuff is fascinating. It's stuff that uh, that I'm passionate about. And uh, again. Your your book was a big catalyst in some pretty significant life changes that I made uh, that so far are, are for the better. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for this book, and thank you for being extremely generous with your time. I'm really moved by that. Thank you both for engaging with the book so much. All right, again, thank you to Johan Hari. The book is titled Lost Connections. You can get uh, you can buy that through Amazon. We have a link on our website, uh, thefitmess.com. Uh, again, just for me, I hope for you, the listener, also just a, a fascinating conversation about uh, a, a very complex and difficult topic. Um, I, I do sort of want to point one thing out in terms of my own challenge, my own battle with this, uh, as it relates to some of the things we were talking about. Reading his book was really powerful for me because I had also been told the tale of uh, you know, it's a it's a physical issue in you. There's something broken in you that makes you depressed. You can't really do anything about it except live through it. When it's bad, just experience it, wait for it to go away, and that's really all you can do. Reading his book opened me up to the possibility that maybe I'm not broken, but I live in a broken society. And it sort of took the shackles off and allowed me to view my struggle with it in what so far is a healthier way. Changing that perception for me uh, opened me up to making some dietary changes, making some physical exercise changes, and sort of taking the battle a little more seriously. So I by no means want to give the idea that this is something that a depressed person, it's up to them to change, that there's something... Uh, that, that they can necessarily do today to feel better. But if you are, as in the analogy he used, the person in the car crash, the person that's been badly wounded, if you're badly wounded and nobody sees that you're badly wounded, you're not going to get help. Or it's, or it's very unlikely that you're going to get help. So I would just encourage you that if you are that person that is just stuck, you can't get out of it, Whatever you, you can't get off the couch, you can't leave your house for days on end, whatever it is, when you have the strength, because I know for me it's ups and downs, it swings. When you're in the ups, make a phone call, tell somebody, write an email, reach out in any way you can. While you're, while you're in the car that's burning, wave your hands. So somebody can come over and pull you out and help you because it's not it's not your responsibility to to fix yourself. But if you but if nobody knows you're hurting, nobody can help you. Nobody I, I just I find it to be very rare that someone will help you if you don't ask for help. Right. And depression is just it's it's one of those beasts that will keep you. Yeah. Keep you down. Um, if you've never experienced real depression. You know, it, it's not just sadness. No, it's not a bad day. Right. It's 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 hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And I I completely agree with you. If you have that moment of of realization mm -hmm. that you are depressed and it's just a little bit better, wave your arms, wave your legs, whatever you can wave. Get somebody to notice because uh, getting help is the only way you're going to get better. Yeah. I want to give you the cow. But if I don't know you need the cow, I don't know to give you a cow. We all need a cow. We all need a cow. I, it's just a matter of figuring out what's the cow for that. But in today's society, I want 10 cows. I want 20 cows. Sure. The more, the better, right? Yeah. More. If I, if I, don't, if I don't have enough, then uh, there's a trigger. I'm going to get depressed. I do want to thank you, though, for you know, telling me about this book. Jeremy, hmm. Jeremy found this book originally, and I didn't read it until a couple of weeks before the interview mm -hmm. and, and man, it, it really is validating. So, yeah. And, and I hope that is the takeaway that, you know, ultimately uh, that is what I think we're trying to do, especially with this episode is to validate your feelings. If you are someone that battles with this, it's not you, you're not broken. There might be some chemical thing that medication can help. Like he said, a little bit, and maybe that little bit is all you need to take the next step to, Find another resource that works for you. Um, you know, for me, getting off that pill, reading this book, changed my diet, got me in the gym, 
and my my battles with depression when I have them are shorter. I'm exploring new tools to battle it every day, uh, and and it's only been uh, better and better since uh, since I opened uh, opened this book, and and it really uh, it did it changed my life. Um, so I hope uh, I hope that you will read it. I hope you uh, got something out of that interview with uh, with Mr. Hari. Uh, and I think that's it for this episode. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google or wherever you get your shows. Follow us on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. All of the links to everything are on our website, thefitmess.com. And uh, we'll be throwing up some more blogs and some things up there. But the goal, I, now that we've done a couple of these, we're going to try and roll these out every couple weeks, uh, I think on Sundays or Mondays. So please uh, subscribe, tell your friends, do, uh, and, and share this with anyone that you think it might be helpful for. Tell everyone um, you know. Yes. And, uh, and please feedback, uh, questions, comments, uh, reach out. We want this to be a community. We don't want this to be a, a one-way conversation. So, uh, please, uh, be in touch with us and, uh, we will respond. I promise. So Jeremy, before we go, yeah, I do have one challenge I want to throw. Oh, away. good. Good. Cause so, I got nothing but time. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. So, you know, one of the things I, I'm really sensitive to food. If I'm eating really crappy, I can notice my depression actually getting worse or my anxiety getting worse. Yeah, how was Halloween for you? Oh, we're <laughs> recording this the day after Halloween, yeah. and uh, I, I've eaten way too many Kit Kats today. A couple of Reese's cut, peanut butter cups. Brutal. I, my diet the last week or two has been has been pretty off, mm-hmm. and amazingly, you know, I I, I can feel the difference. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm just not operating the way I normally am. And it's got me in a little bit of a funk. Mm-hmm. So before we go, mm-hmm. before we, we come back, I want to challenge you to okay. um, be an accountability partner for me. Okay. And, uh, you know, let's make sure that we have nice, clean eating until Thanksgiving rolls Thanksgiving. Around. Okay. So we're going to, we will have another show that we'll post on the 19th. So we will update progress at that point. That will be just days away from Thanksgiving. Yep. So really in terms of accountability, we just have to get through the 19th. And then uh, essentially, then we could fake it. Then we could fake really it. We can totally just be liars if yeah. we wanted to. But uh, okay. Well, and and you know, I I will say accept uh, challenge accepted. However, I've already challenged myself to that after also eating like shit on Thanksgiving, uh, and just going like I cannot. I just feel awful. I've been trying to drink you know as much water as I can today, just flush my system out. Last night I was researching like should I fast after all this garbage I just put in my body, uh, which I'm not doing by the way. Um, but I was like, that's it. I, I know I cannot beat the holidays. The holidays are more powerful than me. So I blew it on Halloween. I'm going to blow it on Thanksgiving. The in-between is mine. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay clean uh, until Thanksgiving as well. So how are you going to eat? How are you going to eat clean? Are you going to go low fat? Oh, God, no. No, I, uh, I've had a lot of success this year with uh, keto or keto light, basically, just cutting out low as carb. much. Yeah, low carbs as much as possible. Lots of fats, lots of protein, uh, lots of exercise, lots of water. That's uh, that's kind of the plan I'm going to stick with. All right. So until Thanksgiving, low-carb, keto-ish. Deal. Nice. <laughs> I can't wait to go through the keto flu. Oh, God. It's after hilarious. all the Kit Kats. I'm sweating right now. All right. That's it. We will see you in a couple of weeks at thefitmess.com. <laughs>